This episode is supported by Jace Medical. You may or may not know that in December, drug shortages across the U.S. hit a record high. This is causing severe disruptions in medical treatments, resulting in delays, treatment cancellations, and the unfortunate rationing of vital medications. I know that I have heard in the last few months from multiple mom friends of mine, instances where they have not been able to get medications for themselves or for their children in critical crisis moments. This is so, so scary. I know I've had friends with their kids having seasonal flu cold symptoms, struggling to breathe, and they're at urgent care and unable to get the antibiotics that they need because of these shortages. This is scary stuff. Most notably, one of the short supply antibiotics is amoxicillin, which is commonly used for so many of our children's illnesses. So here's where Jace Medical comes in. They have the Jace case, which is a personalized emergency medication kit that contains five essential antibiotics that are used for the most common common and deadly bacterial infections. And you can also customize your case and add additional life-saving medications based on your or your children's family's unique needs, like an EpiPen, for example, something that you would never want to be without, would never want to have to run from pharmacy to pharmacy in pursuit of. So if you want to go get these medications and have your antibiotics on supply so that you always have them when you need them in case of an emergency, in case of a disaster, in case of being a, you know, a victim of this drug shortage, Jace Medical will have you covered. All you need to do is go to jacemedical.com and enter the code SHAMELESS at checkout for a discount on your order. That's promo code SHAMELESS at jacemedical, J-A-S-E medical.com, jacemedical.com, code SHAMELESS. This is the Shameless Mom Academy, episode 140 with Jen Lumenlon. Show notes for this episode can be found by going to shamelessmom.com and clicking on episode 140. Welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm your host, Sarah Dean, and I'm here to give you and other passionate, dedicated moms the tools you need to bridge the gap between motherhood and living the life of your dreams. I'm also here to help you be a little more shameless every day, because if you aren't building a life you're extraordinarily proud of, what kind of legacy are you building? So let's dive in. Jen Lumenlon is the host of Your Parenting Mojo podcast, which distills scientific research on child development in a format that parents can actually use. She has done a ton of research on both child development and education, and also recently launched her own course called Your Homeschooling Mojo, which helps parents decide whether homeschooling is right for their family. So all that said... Jen's friends think that it's pretty ironic that she never thought she'd be a parent because she really didn't have a mothering instinct in her body. Jen received her bachelor degree from UC Berkeley and a master's of environmental management from Yale and spent several years consulting before realizing that she was way more passionate about being a parent than she ever thought she would be. So she went back to school, got another master's in psychology, focused on child development, and she's now working on another degree in education. She's a little bit educated. <laughs> so Jen is still doing a less rigorous day job while she ramps up the business that she hopes will enable her daughter's homeschooling. We're going to talk about what she's learned from the research that has helped her be a better parent so that she can stop worrying so much about being a parent and just enjoy life. Jen's little girl is three. So we're going to talk about things that she's learned in parenthood that have been surprising. We're also going to talk about things in the education system that are definitely going to be eye-opening to you and really, really fascinating. And this was a fascinating conversation. Listen in to hear Jen share why and how she uses research to lead her parenting, the truth about only children and social skills and intelligence. I was fascinated about this. How she knew homeschooling would be the best decision for her daughter, even though she's not school age yet. Why our current education system is not meeting the needs of our kids, the myths and the truth of homeschooling and homeschooling stereotypes, and why homeschooling is becoming more popular 
especially among Black families. Jen is a wealth of information, and this was just fascinating. We could have talked for hours. She had so much to share, and you are going to learn a lot in here. And Jen gives us a ton of resources at the end. So make sure you pop over to shamelessmom.com and click on episode 140 to check out all of the resources Jen has shared. There's books and articles and podcast episodes. And she even was so kind to give us a little discount code for her new course, Your Homeschooling Mojo, for parents who might be interested in figuring out whether homeschool is a good option for them. So make sure you pop over the show notes to check out all those resources while you're listening or when you're done listening. Okay, let's go ahead and dive in with Jen Lumenlon. Jen Lumenlon, welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm happy to have you here today. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. So you reached out to me about your work that you do with parenting and parenting education and homeschooling. And so I'm really excited to dive into all of this with you. I think we have a lot to cover and I'm excited for you to just share a lot of your knowledge and experience with us because I know your knowledge runs deep and wide and your experience as a parent in all of this does too. So tell us a little bit more about the dynamics of your personal and professional life right now and what you are most excited about. Yeah. So I have a day job at the moment. I work in sales for a consulting company, but I am actually kind of living out the steps that I outline in a course that I created to help families figure out if they can possibly do homeschooling. I decided that I do want to homeschool my daughter and have been in corporate careers for a long time now. And my husband has as well. And when I started researching education and the psychology of learning, I realized that homeschooling was really going to be the path that fit us the best. But I had absolutely no idea how we were going to be able to afford it living in the Bay Area and <laughs> needing two incomes to pay a mortgage. Right. So I started reading a lot of books about non-traditional careers and having multiple careers at the same time. And also at work, I took the Strengths Finder assessment, which is amazing. If you have I've done it. that. It's super interesting. Yeah, it really is. And what I found was that my top five strengths are all related to learning. And so I, it sort of made me transition my thinking from, oh, that's, you know, sort of some interesting things about me to, wow, this is a package of sort of usefulness <laughs> that I can put to work for me and that I love learning so much. And I want to share what I've learned about parenting and about homeschooling with other people. So I that's what it. I'm working on, passionate about right now. Nice. How old is your daughter? She is almost three. Okay. So she's not school age yet, but you already know that you are anticipating homeschooling. Right. So yeah. that is really impressive. Because I think a lot of times people, <laughs> like my experience, and we'll talk a little, I'm sure we'll get into a lot of different things with this as we have the more conversation about homeschooling mm-hmm. here in a minute. But my experience with homeschooling, or with people who've done homeschooling is usually that they find that they put their child in the traditional system and the traditional system fails their child enough times to the mm-hmm. point that they're like, okay, we're not going to do this anymore. Do you yeah. find that is that more common? Or do you find that there is a larger movement of people who actually know from the get go that this is the route they want to take? Well, I think it depends. I would say my route is probably a little unusual. I obviously like to research. (laughs) And so I had done a lot of research on daycares because we had a nanny when she was very young Mm -hmm. and knew we needed to transition out of that relationship. And so I did a lot of research on the different approaches to daycare, Waldorf and Montessori and all those kinds of things. And I realized that Reggie Emilia was really the approach that spoke to us the best. And so I sort of felt like we were set for the next few years. And then I thought, okay, so what happens when she gets to school age? And I started doing a lot of reading about schools 
and realizing that schools are actually not very well set up to help children learn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I thought, why am I spending all this money and putting all this effort into a program that I really believe is best for her for a daycare environment? And then at the end of it, I'm just going to stick her in school because I went to school and my husband went to school and everybody we know goes to school. Is there a better approach out there? And I looked at private schools and then I started learning about homeschooling and I just knew I just kind of glommed onto that idea (laughs) and I knew that it was going to be right for us. And I think that that is a fairly unusual way of coming at it. I think probably your listeners have heard some of the stereotypes about homeschoolers and I don't think it's unfair to say that the stereotype is that they're sort of, you know, right wing religious nut jobs. And I will say that a lot of them are religious. Most of them are not nut jobs. (laughs) (laughs) But I think about two thirds of them are religious in some way. And so they probably think about it from an earlier stage than the non-religious parents. And then, yeah, if you kind of went through school and there's no other reason for you not to consider going through school, then, yeah, you put your kids in school and then all of a sudden you realize, okay, this is not working out for my child. And there are some children that it does work out very well for. And I happen to be one of them. (laughs) I I did very well in school, but there are very, very, very many children who do not do well in school and would do much better in an environment where they got to choose their approach to learning. Can you tell us a little bit about the approach that your daughter is doing right now, which I didn't Mm -hmm. quite catch the name of it? Yeah, it's (laughs) called Reggio Emilia. (laughs) Okay, tell us about Reggio Emilia. Yeah, so it's an approach that's very much based in child-led learning. And so an example of that might be the children are playing out in the sandbox one morning and they find a spider. And everybody comes over to look at the spider and they're super interested in it and they're asking questions about spiders. And so the teachers don't say, "Okay, come inside now, children. We're learning about bubbles today. (laughs) They kind of run with the idea that the children have generated themselves and say, well, what questions do we have about spiders? And how can we find out some answers to those questions? What initial ideas do we have about those questions? And so we actually took the children on a nature walk recently and they were very, very excited about roly polies and they learned, I wasn't in the classroom when this happened, but they learned that roly polies actually turn blue when they get a certain kind of sickness. And so they wanted to speak to a doctor to find out if a doctor had ever seen a roly poly bug and had made a roly poly bug feel better. And so one of the kids' parents is a doctor. And so she went in and said, no, she hadn't ever seen a roly poly bug, but (laughs) showed them a stethoscope and those kinds of things. And so it's learning that's based on the children's interest. And because the children are motivated, because it's based in their own curiosity, mm-hmm. they get so deep on a topic. And, you know, you must have observed children who know everything there is to know about dinosaurs. <laughs> right, and right. so Reggio approach would really support that learning and kind of take it to the whole classroom level and, and encourage a child who is interested in dinosaurs to bring dinosaurs in and tell the right. class about them. And see if anyone else was interested. And so that's kind of the whole idea is based around child-led learning. I love this. And this is so funny because... So my son's school does this approach and I did not know there was a name for it. (laughs) And what's hilarious is I always tell people, I'm like, well, it's a play-based program. Uh (laughs) Yeah. So, and they've never, (laughs) yeah, I mean, but it, like you said, it's child-led learning. So I've always used the example of like, you know, when they're really interested in animals, then, and the teacher is very clear, like we don't pull out a smartphone and Google things. We have books and resources and we look things up and we go to the library and learn things. And then we go to like, there's a zoo right nearby. 
there's a, another store down the street that has like some animal resources. And so they go there. So there's all these things that they do to wrap the whole curriculum around whatever the kids are interested in. And mm-hmm. we've had this interesting experience in the last few months. So my child, he's been in the school for three years now, and we thought we were going to move him for pre-K into a Montessori-based program. And I did Montessori and my child is a mm. lot like me. So I was like, this will be great for him. And we met with this current teacher who was like, you know, I have to say your child being an only child it would make more sense to, for him to stay in a little bit more of a social learning situation for one more year, because this is not a child who's going to struggle to like sit still and like do linear learning kinds of things. Uh-huh. Yep. But as an only child, he will potentially, and maybe we've already seen a little bit of this, like making connections and building relationships and like practicing being a leader and all those kinds of things might be some of his bigger challenges. So let's really use one more year and like have him stay at the school and do pre-K there where he can again be in this child-led learning program. And my husband and I walked into the meeting thinking like, we're definitely going to move him to the Montessori. And then we walked out we're like, <laughs> we're definitely keeping him here. <laughs> so. Okay. Well, that's very interesting on a couple of fronts. And we actually haven't talked about my podcast yet. I have a podcast yeah. called Your Parenting Mojo, which takes science-based information and makes it accessible for parents. And I am actually neck deep in researching an episode on only children right now. Oh, and so please as analyze preview, my family right now. Yes, yes. My own list haven't heard this yet. But as a preview, there is statistically essentially no difference between a child who has grown up an only child and a child who has grown up with siblings in terms of socialization, in terms of any of the stereotypes that only children have. And the only difference that has been shown to be statistically significant is actually, can you guess? No. Intelligence. Oh, really? Yes. And scientists think that the reason... Are they at an advantage, (laughs) I hope? The reason for that is because the only child is surrounded by adults for a lot of the time. And so the adults use their vocabulary and the child's vocabulary gets pulled up to the adult level faster. Okay. And so as children with siblings actually do catch up by about adolescence, but then the only children pull away again in late adolescence because the parents only have one child to fund their college education. And so they have much more resources to devote to that one child that doesn't have to be spread thinly across multiple children. So actually... Actually, only children end up getting more years of education than children who have siblings. Oh, that is so fascinating. Yeah. So So I would say that the reason to keep your child in the Reggio-based environment is because it's going to continue to develop his love of learning. Yes. (laughs) And not because it will necessarily do anything to help his social skills. Well, I think that the teacher's feedback was based on how he's seen him try to build relationships and... Mm -hmm. He's been like a little slower to really go deep into friendships. And I don't know. Yeah. And so keep him in an environment so, where he already knows the kids. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. <laughs> All and the kids work. Yeah. And way. the teacher had said like he's at the end of this year, he's finally has like one really good friend in class that he identifies mm-hmm. as this is my best friend. And he hasn't had yeah. that before. And other kids at the beginning of the year had that. So he's just yeah. been a little slower. And maybe that's not from being yep. an only child, but he's yeah, just been a little exactly. slower to make those really deep connections. And that's, yeah. you know, the teacher was like, that's really valuable. So oh, so fascinating. I didn't know yeah. this was going to turn into some <laughs> counseling for me. <laughs> yeah, my daughter's actually the same way. It's actually a specific kind of personality type called being slow to warm up. And yeah, you yes, take her into a social situation totally. and she just kind of hides against my shoulder, but yeah. give her an hour or so and she will warm up and start running around. And yeah, she's just starting to develop deep friendships now. So yeah, those are all good reasons to keep your son yeah. in the environment that he's in right now. Oh God, I feel better about our decision. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me a little bit about, you didn't ever think you would be a parent. And this is fascinating to me because now your work is all around 
child development. And so yes. were you already in child development before no, when you thought no. you, okay, so this is all shifted. So yes. tell us about the shift into parenthood, which you didn't see as part of your path, and then your work becoming what it is. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff. Yes. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? Yeah. I never liked kids. Oh, <laughs> and so kids funny. never really liked me either. <laughs> you know, I'm the kind of person where you touch a child and they start screaming. Oh my gosh. Uh, so yeah, I had never really been around them growing up. If somebody said, do you want to hold a baby? I'm like, nah, not really. Thanks. <laughs> and so, but my husband had always made it clear that he was marrying me and would be okay with not having kids kind of said, you know, I want kids and, and I'm not going to hide it. And if you don't want them, then I'll be okay with that decision. But I want kids. And so he would always say, yeah, I want kids, but can we just have another ski season? And then ski season would be <laughs> like, yeah, I want kids, but can we just have another bike season first? <laughs> and so finally I said to him, well, if you're not going to pull the trigger on this, then I'm never going to pull the trigger. Yeah. And so are you ready? And he's like, well, yeah, if I have to be ready, I'm ready. And so I actually came off birth control without telling him. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and so he, came, he went away for a work trip one time and he gets back and he's just whining about this guy that this really incompetent guy that he's working with. And I gave him a box. I said, I missed you so much. I brought you a present. And inside the box was a pregnancy test. And his first question was, what is this? And his second <laughs> question was, what do the two pink lines mean? <laughs> oh my gosh. 
That gives so, me goosebumps. So was he excited? Yeah. It did him as well. He was a little more terrified than excited early on. <laughs> I had thought there would be a little bit of terrified and then a whole lot of excited. Yeah. And actually there was a lot of terrified and then a lot of excited. <laughs> and what was that like for you? Because coming from a place thinking you didn't want this, like were you also, yeah. e- was it equal parts terrified and excited? Yeah. Okay. yeah. And I should say I'm easily disappointed. So okay. I go into things with very low expectations. Okay. Thinking if I go into this with low expectations, I can't get disappointed. And so my expectations for parenting were <laughs> pretty minimal. <laughs> <laughs> this so. is going to be awful for 18 oh, years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not an exaggeration to say there are two reasons I wanted to have a natural birth. The first reason was I wanted to hike around Mont Blanc with my daughter when she was going to be about eight weeks old. And so I knew I couldn't do that if I was recovering from a C-section. Okay. (laughs) It was going to be a 10-day backpacking trip. And so I really needed that. Wow. And the other reason was I didn't know if I was going to be able to bond with this baby. I just didn't know if I had it in me. Interesting. Yeah. And what was that like after she was born? There were tears. Yeah. <laughs> there were some tears. Yeah. And, and, and I you, guess it. Did you it feel wasn't an immediate bonding? It wasn't an immediate, oh my God, I'm so in love with you. It's, right. It was more of a, okay, you're here. This isn't awful. <laughs> and yeah. the, the first few days were pretty rough. And I don't know if everybody has the day four mama meltdown, but I had the day four mama meltdown. Oh, I think my doctor told me, I can't remember which day it was, but I remember my doctor very specifically saying like, day four or day five or something right yeah. in there. She's like, there's yeah. like one day she's like, it is literally like, this is the day that you have the mama blues no matter what. And that right. doesn't mean you're going to yeah. have postpartum depression, but just yeah. let me know if it doesn't go away. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and so my doctor didn't mention that, but luckily I had a friend who did. <laughs> so I knew it was coming. And I think on day 10, we had a celebration because I hadn't cried that day for the first oh time since she was born. And after that, it did start to get better. And I got lucky that she's a good sleeper and is uh, relatively easygoing. So she's easier to love. Yeah. <laughs> and it has definitely been something that has built over time. Oh, so. that, you know, that is yeah. so interesting. So I am not a low expectation person. I am like a high <laughs> hopes person. And then I'm super frustrated if I can't control something and make it be uh-huh. like live up to my expectations. So yeah. that was very hard for me in motherhood because I really romanticize, like I call it newborn land. And I really romanticize what new born land was going to be like after this baby came. And it had taken us a long time to get pregnant. So I was like, this is just going to be perfection and magic and rainbows and unicorns. And that whole first year just killed me because it was not that. And also, I remember my mom saying, as soon as this baby's born, you're just going to hold it in your arms and you're just going to immediately fall in love with it. And like, you won't remember any of the pain of childbirth. And I was like, I remember my doctor stitching me up and I remember saying the pain was supposed to be over after the baby came out. Like, why isn't the pain over? Like, it hurt to get the placenta out. It hurt to get the stitches. All these things kept hurting. And I was like, everyone told me the pain's supposed to be over now. And also, (laughs) it was not love at first sight or first contact. It really took me some time to, I think I had to like mature into the relationship. It wasn't that day and it was not overnight. I really feel like it took time and I had a very challenging child and I had a very challenging nursing experience, which I think really... Yep made that experience way longer and more traumatic. And so it took some time. And now like my husband and I talk about it and I like always burst into tears because I'm like, oh my God, I'm more in love with him every single day. And Vinny wakes up in the morning and I'm like, can I just stare at your little face? Like, so it's happened, but it's taken time. And now it's like more intense every day to the point that it like freaks me out. (laughs) It's so intense. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, that's good for everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Tell us a little bit about, we see with research, I'll tell you, I have a background in sociology and psychology, so lots of research Mm. in my undergrad degree. 
A lot of research, especially for parents, is they capitalize on the clickbait headline and really things that drive fear in parents. So mm-hmm. oftentimes you'll click on an article and be like, oh my gosh, does this mean my child is whatever? And then you read it and you can come, sometimes come to very different conclusions than what the article originally suggested. How Those are my re- favorites. <laughs> oh, it's maddening. It's so maddening. And I know as someone who does online marketing for my own multiple businesses, I know what they're trying to do, but it is like it preys on parents' worst fears when you yeah. see headlines on Facebook that are like, you know, make sure you do this one thing or your child might die before they're three. And it's like crazy, (laughs) crazy things like that. So tell us a little bit about how research has changed the way that you parent your daughter and how that's been very supportive of the process for you. Mm, Yeah. I mean, it all stems from the fact that I have really no parenting intuition whatsoever, (laughs) as you probably might expect. But you may remember the results of my StrengthsFinder assessment. I love to learn. And so I thought, okay, this is a problem that can be solved with research. (laughs) And so I actually ended up going back to school and getting a master's in psychology to kind of put a framework around what I was learning because I didn't know if I was getting to the important topics or, you know, if I was missing something really major. And so that degree kind of helped me to really see that I was getting a more complete picture And so when I do an episode on the show, what I'm doing is taking an issue like, you know, single children, which is something that actually I hadn't thought to research because I'm like, well, I'm only having one. So it doesn't really matter what the research says. (laughs) You don't want to know if it's bad, if there's going to be a bad (laughs) outcome. I really don't. But a parent emailed me and said, could you do an episode on only children? I'm like, oh, okay, (laughs) fine. And so what I do is I go into it and try and look at it from all angles and not just say, well, what does one study say and okay let's find 15 other studies that corroborate that I really make an effort to go out and seek out alternate viewpoints and say okay well why did two researchers believe different things and what's the reasoning behind that and so some of the things that I found have really fundamentally changed the way that I parent and some concrete examples of those you know I read with my daughter but I also make sure to ask her math-based questions you know we count things all the time as we're cooking and even as we're reading we count things on the page because parents talk a lot more about math with boys than with girls and it's possible that that's one of the reasons why girls are less comfortable with math than boys and research has shown that girls aren't less able to do math than boys. Uh, Their ability is just as good, but their confidence with math is way lower. Why do parents do that? Is that a a predisposition (laughs) of like gender roles kind of? I believe it is. Yes. I had an episode a few back with Dr. Christia Brown, who has studied a lot about gender roles. And you would be shocked at the things that parents do with girls and not with boys without even realizing it, you know, even, you know, just dressing in pink all the time Mm, and what that says to a girl about what your place is in the world and children very quickly pick up on groups all adults and you know all people kind of use groups as a way of very quickly making decisions about something and it helps us to move through our day because we wouldn't be able to function if we had to analyze each individual (laughs) on a kind of case-by-case basis and so we very quickly put these people into groups and so you know that has profound implications for how we talk about race and Mm -hmm. so children will see somebody who looks different from themselves and they will put that person in a different group and they will start to attribute positive qualities to people in their own group and negative qualities to people in the other group and you know we when children grow older and there's more kind of prejudice involved in that we call that racism right 
And so it starts at a very, very, very young age. And so what I've learned from doing this research is that the assumption I had always made that if you just don't talk about race, it won't be an issue is rubbish, I guess, is the polite way of (laughs) saying it (laughs) where I'm from. If you don't talk about race, then the child doesn't ever learn to challenge their assumption that the people who look like me are like me and are better than the people who don't look like me. And so when we read books, and I make a distinct effort to choose books that have people in them who don't look like us Mm. and to say, you know, what do you notice about that person? And when I did an episode on race and on social groups, I actually mentioned that my daughter had come running in one day when I was looking at an article, I think it was about race and social groupings on the computer. And there was a picture of a black girl at the top of the image. And my daughter comes running in and she's two and a half at the time. And she said, oh, she's dirty. Oh, wow. And, you know, mind blown. Yeah. (laughs) And that was my indicator. She is now ready (laughs) to talk about race (laughs) because it is apparent that she is noticing these differences. Yeah. And, you know, being racist is such a loaded term that adults use. And, you know, my daughter's not a racist. She's not going to grow up to be a racist necessarily. But what that says to me is she notices these social groups and she's ready to have a conversation about how people are alike and how people are different. And, you know, if she was dirty, wouldn't the dirt scrub off? (laughs) And, you know, if there's a dark colored doll in the collection we have here or at school, what happens if we give it a bath and give it a scrub? Does the dirt come off? (laughs) And so those are the kinds of things that you can do with children to really burst their notions of what these kind of groupings are. And those are the first steps that you can take to move beyond the characteristics that really are not helping our society to move forward, shall we say. (laughs) Is it just an innate quality or the brain does that just to categorize things? So it's like an organization of information that starts out being very objective. But then like, as you said, when you start to put attributes with it is when it becomes much more subjective. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I would ever say it's objective because all the groupings are subjective in a way. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. true. Your groupings are going to be different to mine. Sure. But yes, we wouldn't be able to move through our days without it, without saying, you know, this looks like that. And I have experience with that. I know what that is like. And thus, I know how to deal with it. There would just be too much information for us to process every single thing as an individual object. So it's constant categorization of data. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And so I guess the final thing I would mention about how research has changed my approach to parenting is I don't force my daughter to eat vegetables. Does she eat them? I will say she used to eat more than she does. (laughs) We did baby led weaning. That's uh, totally normal, by the way. Yeah, it is. They get to be less and less. (laughs) I'm fascinated. So So I have a background in health and fitness, and I'm fascinated by this topic because I know that I feel like it's just like luck of the draw if your kid's going to be into vegetables. Like my kid happens to be into vegetables, but I think sometimes it's uncomfortable to me because I feel like when I send this lunch to school and everything, they're like, oh, there's like, you know, the super healthy mom sending the healthy lunch. And I'm like, seriously, he just likes these things. Like it's not me pushing it on him. We have good friends who have one son who will eat anything and one son who won't eat anything at all. And so it's just like you get, and they're in the same environment. (laughs) Yeah. They're raised with the same environment, same values, same food in front of them. I mean like, yeah. So Yeah. So when my daughter was younger, she would eat everything. We actually have a chalkboard in our kitchen that kept track of all the things she would eat. And I mean, it's everything we ate, she would eat. 
and I was like, yeah, I'm good at this. And so I would let her eat whatever she wanted. And some days she would choose to eat only meat. And then the next day she'd have broccoli for breakfast. Okay. And so it would all kind of even out. And then of course they get to the toddler stage where they get much more assertive in their opinions. Yes. <laughs> and so we've started having conversations and this episode actually came from a sociologist, Dr. Dina Rose. And I did an interview with her a while back and we actually had a parent on who was really struggling at the time with her son's eating. And yeah, she was saying, you know, he'll eat anything that's cheese. <laughs> <laughs> and so how do you start from what is a very low baseline and introduce new things? And we're lucky in that we have always had a bit of a broader baseline. And so, yeah. you know, she will no longer eat asparagus and several other vegetables, but she will eat at least five or six different kinds of vegetables. And so I always make one of those available if we're having something she doesn't want to eat. But the research clearly shows that if you make vegetables a gateway food, which is to say, if you say, yes, you can have dessert as long as you eat your vegetables first, mm -hmm. that only makes the child like vegetables less. And the oh. only factor that predicts whether a child will eat vegetables is how much they like vegetables. Okay. So That's Dr. Rose's strategy is to try and help children like vegetables more by kind of starting from where you are. So if your child only eats cheese, then, you know, maybe you start by putting something that's not a vegetable and you put cheese on it to make that appealing. And then the next time you serve that and also a vegetable also with cheese on. <laughs> yeah. And so even though, you know, you're not magically making your child into a vegetable lover overnight, you're starting from where they are. And by drowning everything with cheese to start with, you know, it makes it more appealing to them and slowly and but surely you expand the repertoire of things they'll take with cheese and then you start backing down the cheese. And <laughs> right. so, yeah, that's how she approaches it. And we're somewhat lucky that we haven't needed that yet because we still have a bit of a broad base. <laughs> Are you familiar with the book Child of Mine? It's yes. So I have the book. I have not read it because it's like 500 pages long. So I have it next to my bed thinking someday I'll read this because I've heard really great things about it. And I think that it's this fascinating topic to me and it's about eating and it's about, again, like you said, not making vegetables a gateway. And it's like, if you're going to give your kid a popsicle, like put the popsicle on the dinner table with the rest of dinner and like let them. It's a fascinating concept. And everyone I know who's made changes with their children's nutrition based on this book has just had amazing things to say. And yeah. it takes the power yeah. struggle out, which I think is so valuable. And like you said, the research behind it, I think is empowering to parents so that you don't feel like yeah. you're just like shooting in the dark and seeing what sticks. And yeah. So I think and the popsicle becomes no longer a gateway. You know, right. you're not using the vegetable as a gateway to get the popsicle anymore. <laughs> so yeah, so you don't have to fight with your kids to eat the vegetables. If they want to eat the popsicle first and then ignore the vegetables, so be it. You know, in that case, I leave my daughter's plate until after she's gone to bed, just so that if she does come back right before bedtime and say, I'm still hungry, you can say, well, here it is still on your plate. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> so, you know, it's not to say that our life is totally problem free when it comes to eating, but it seems like we're on a very research ground grounded philosophy and we don't have power struggles really. So I'm grateful for that. And she's three. How far into three is she? She's almost three. She's not yet. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Okay. So there might still be some power struggles coming your way. It's possible. <laughs> yeah, I would it's say possible. it's interesting. I think again, totally depends on the temperament of the child. I had a very strong willed child from the day he was born. And as communication has become more prevalent with him and he's been yeah. able to access words, which, you know, now he's four and a half. So he has a lot of words, but the power struggles and the drama and the trauma around things has just like gotten more and more minimal every year. So for yeah. us, you know, we get together with our friends who have kids the same age and I'm just like, oh my gosh, it just keeps getting better. And some of them are like, what is this crazy stuff that's <laughs> happening? Because we 
we literally at six months old, I would have a child who would be screaming about like, and I had no words, but he would be screaming like in his bouncy chair, screaming and shaking because he wanted a certain toy, but I would have no clue what he wanted. So now for us, it's just gotten better and better. But I know for other people, three and four was like really challenging with power struggles. So yeah. yeah. (laughs) And have you read how to talk so little kids will listen? It's a new version of the old how to talk so kids will listen and, and how listen to listen. To kids yeah, to yeah, yeah. So yeah. I do have that. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the original author's daughters and the daughter's best friend, Julie King, co-wrote the new book for younger children. And I think it's aimed at the three to seven crowd. Okay. And I interviewed Julie King a while back. And there are some really helpful tools in there for kind of getting beyond the power struggle and even making it so there isn't a power struggle in the first place. Because really, if you get to the point where you are having a power struggle with a three-year-old, <laughs> then something in your mind should go off and say, okay, we need to figure out how to kind of bypass this in the future. Right, right. How to nip and it in the bed are, before you get there. Yeah, exactly. And to start to help your child to come to the table with solutions. You know, my daughter's going through a phase where she does not like brushing her teeth. <laughs> and so <laughs> I think it seems like every child goes through this because right. I see it in the parenting notice boards all the time on Facebook. And so I say to her, you know, we need to brush your teeth and it's non-negotiable in our household. It's not going to kill you tonight if you don't brush tonight, but if you don't do tomorrow and the next night and the next night, then, you know, then it's an issue. Right. And so I say, well, you know, what can we do to make brushing your teeth acceptable? And so what we've come up with is she likes to brush her teeth in the living room. (laughs) And I'm thinking to myself, really? (laughs) Why is brushing your teeth in the living room better than brushing in the bathroom? And the the only thing I can come up with is it's because, you know, I'm telling her you must brush your teeth. But where if she gets to pick the location, she controls. Yeah, she has some control over the situation. And so, yeah, that book, How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen, is full of tips for how to really have a very respectful relationship with your child that moves beyond the parenting struggles, the power struggles that characterize this age. Oh, that's great. So all the books that we're mentioning, because I know we're throwing a lot of resources out there. So all the books we'll that we're mentioning, <laughs> I will put them, if you go to the show notes over at shamelessmom.com episode 140, I'll make sure that all of our books are linked in the show notes at the bottom there. I'll link all the books up so that people yep. can find them because these are really, really great resources. Mm-hmm. And I will mention my rule of thumb for parenting books is that you take the book or when you get the book, you open it to the like chapter or maybe even just the paragraph that applies to you right now. And you read that, like, don't feel like you have to sit down and read a book from beginning to end. Because I find that I won't read parenting books because I feel like, Oh, I have to start with like the preface and like read all the way to the end. I don't ever get to it. So when Vinny was probably two or so, I was finally like, I'm just going to read the chapter that pertains to me today and not Mm -hmm. need to read the whole thing. And that's been so I have a stack next to my bed, but I'll just dive into like certain sections when they are relevant, mm-hmm. which actually makes me consume the information rather than it just sitting next to my bed. So. <laughs> yeah, it's actually more useful. What else is on your reading list? So I actually, someone just brought this up to me today that I have it sitting there and I haven't read it yet. Um, the Five Love Languages of Children. Okay. All Joy, No Fun, which is all recent. Oh, I did an episode on that. <laughs> oh, so I've really enjoyed it. And uh It was actually mentioned to me by another parent who's a sociology professor. And I think she read it. So our kids are like just a couple weeks apart in age. And I think she read it when her little girl was maybe two. And she's like, this made me think that actually I could enjoy parenting at some point. (laughs) It's really funny. What's the other one? The Whole Brain Child. Yeah. And I know there's more. Those are like the first few to come to mind, though. But I do want to get back and read the five love languages of children because Mm -hmm. I'm seeing as my child develops more and more of a personality, 
I'm seeing that the way he manages emotion is different. Like when he gets hurt, he's in this phase. I don't know if it's a phase, but it's what he's doing right now. When he gets hurt, like he used to come running to me. Now he runs and hides and he wants to cry under his bed when he's hurt. And my instinct as mom is like, I just want to hug you and cuddle you and make it better. And it's really hard for me to not just immediately want to make it better. So I was like, I need to figure out like what are his love languages. And I don't want him isolating when he's emotionally in or physically in pain, but also I want to be like respectful of yeah, whatever. Yeah, totally. But I'm like, if I let him have space, does it mean he'll never need me again? <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm not ready to let go. So yeah, it's really interesting <laughs> to start seeing these personality traits and seeing like mm-hmm. things that embarrass him and like just different emotions are getting way more played out, which is really fascinating. So I can imagine. Yeah. So I need to get back into my more consistent reading. <laughs> So I want to talk a little bit about what motivated you to switch gears then and switch your like whole course of study. Was it just the fact that you became a parent? Kind of, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I got the master's. I started working on it to give me that framework around, you know, what skills do I need to be a better parent? And as I'm doing this research, I'm thinking, okay, it's kind of crazy I'm doing all this reading and not sharing it with anyone. Right, right. <laughs> and other people could benefit from this. And I had a blog at the time, and I actually went to Reggio Emilia, Italy, and studied there for a week and wow. learned all about schools. And when I came back, I wrote a 5,000-word blog post on it, and a few people were interested in it. But what I realized was nobody wants to read 5,000-word <laughs> blog posts about Reggio Emilia, but they would be quite happy to listen to it for yeah. 20 minutes. And yeah. so... Yeah. So that was why I started the podcast was a way of sharing that information. And so I was starting to get interested in homeschooling and specifically unschooling, which is a form of homeschooling. Yes. I was going to say, tell (laughs) us the difference because I've heard the two terms and I know that they're not interchangeable. Yeah, they're not. So homeschooling encompasses all forms of education at home that you could imagine. And that varies from you know standing in front of your child every day with flashcards and telling them what they will learn to unschooling, which is essentially the idea that your child's interests can shape their learning. Okay. And so your role is not to be the teacher and to step away from the very behaviorist based approach that schools use, which is that the teacher possesses the knowledge that it's worth knowing. And the teacher's job is to pour that knowledge into the waiting and open vessel of the child's mind and to instead basically continue the Reggio based approach uh, of following the child's interests. And so, you know, the obvious question is, well, how will they ever learn everything they need to learn? And (laughs) and the answer to that is, well, they won't and neither will a child who goes through school. Mm. And, you know, the child who goes through school has followed a curriculum that somebody basically from a corporation whose role is to sell (laughs) textbooks and standardized tests to the state that has decided this is what your child needs to learn. It's really as arbitrary as that. And, you know, they chunk it down into these tiny portions that have no meaning for anyone. You know, the way they learn math is not to say, what is a problem that we need to solve and how can math help us solve it? But, you know, here's how you add, (laughs) here's how you divide. And if the child doesn't need to divide, then their retention of how to do division is horrific. (laughs) And that's why it takes 12 years of going through this stuff over and over and over again, (laughs) because the child firstly often isn't developmentally ready to learn because the most efficient way of teaching in a school is to use written information 
when you're standing in front of a room of 30 children, you know, you need them all to learn quickly. You need them to be able to read. And many, many children are not ready to learn to read until age six, seven, maybe even longer than that. Mm. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent with sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark-Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast. If you like this show, there's a decent chance you'll also enjoy the Shameless Mom Academy. Hi, I'm Sarah Dean, the founder and host of the Shameless Mom Academy. The Shameless Mom Academy is a podcast for moms that centers moms more than it centers your kids. I'm not going to teach you how to make baby food or how to make your three-year-old or 13-year-old stop having tantrums. Instead, I'm going to bring you back to yourself. For the last 20 years, I've been helping moms through growth and transformation. Inside the Shameless Mom Academy, I help you identify who you are and who you are becoming. Look, motherhood is hard. It brought me to my knees many times and sometimes still does. Returning to who I am and who I am becoming allows me to decide how to show up in all those sticky motherhood moments, but also in all my other relationships and in all the ways I show up in my various communities. So come check out the Shameless Mom Academy wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm willing to bet you'll leave feeling a little inspired and maybe even completely fired up. And you'll probably laugh a few times because I promise we never take ourselves too seriously over here. With 700 episodes to choose from, you're likely going to find something that sparks and speaks to you inside the Shameless Mom Academy. But if you allow them to follow their own interests, they will find plenty of other ways of learning what they need to learn. You know, there's YouTube videos on everything these days. (laughs) And it's still valid learning, even if it didn't come out of a textbook. Right, right. (laughs) And so what they come out of it with is not the scraped, very thin layer of minimal knowledge about a broad variety of topics, but much deeper knowledge in the topics they're interested in. And more importantly, they come out of it with a passion for learning Mm -hmm. and the tools and the skills that they need to learn by themselves. That's really cool. So let's talk logistics for a minute. Yeah. Are there like, I'm sure it probably varies by state, but if you decide to homeschool or unschool, are the children still subject to taking certain tests or meeting certain like measures? Yeah, it absolutely does vary by state. And so the reason I created this course, which is called Your Homeschooling Mojo, and is because I realized that I had done a year's worth of research on how to homeschool. Mm. (laughs) And everywhere I went, people were asking me the same questions about homeschooling. So I thought, okay, if everybody asks the same questions, this is something that, you know, this is knowledge that is shareable. And so, yes, the requirements do vary by state. If you're in Nevada, you can basically pull your child out of school. You don't have to let anybody know at all. You start home educating and nobody ever checks up on you. (laughs) If you're in New York, then you actually have to have a quarterly portfolio reviews to make sure that you're meeting certain benchmarks. And then the other states kind of fall in between. There are several that have no notification requirements. And New York's is the most restrictive in terms of keeping tabs on the progress. Interesting. So in New York, who's in checking that? Is it the New York school system? Or is there like a Um, homeschooling overseen organization? Or 
Yeah, it would be the state. And I'm not sure of the exact oh, mechanics the okay. off the top of my head. But yeah, they probably and I know this is how it works in Florida. And I'm not sure if it's the same in New York, but they use school teachers. And as a homeschooler, you need to find a school teacher who will review your portfolio. Oh, okay. okay. Um, and so there are several different ways of doing it. And you can actually take a standardized test if you want to. Okay. And homeschooled children who go the traditional, you know, flashcards, <laughs> workbooks right. kind of approach, actually do much better than traditionally schooled children on standardized tests in part because, you know, it's much more efficient to homeschool. There's an extraordinary amount of time wasted in school. (laughs) You know, I know a few people, I've interviewed people on the podcast and just come in contact in this last year with multiple people who homeschool and unschool. And it's fascinating to me where they're like, yeah, so we do school for like two to three hours a day. And my child is like three years ahead of grade level. Exactly. <laughs> and then and they're like, so, in the afternoon, we go do other like experiential things, yes. which still have educational quality to them, but exactly. it's not like sitting, practicing, writing or whatever. It's like, yes. it's very fascinating. Do you know yeah. Deborah Reber from the Tilt no. Parenting podcast? No. Oh, you should connect with her. So she has a podcast. So her podcast is called Tilt Parenting, but she her work is all in differently wired children. And so she mm. homeschools her son because of his differently wired. So I think he has ADHD and one other thing that now is totally escaping me. But anyways, and they're in the Netherlands. And so I interviewed her and she talked through the process of homeschooling him. But she also talks about it on the podcast. And actually now her son is 12 or 13. So he participates in some of the episodes as well. And they talk about what homeschooling looks like for them and kind of how it's evolved over time. Like initially, it wasn't super smooth, like because he had come from a traditional school learning environment. So then to be like, you're going to stay home with mom all day was not really appealing. to him. <laughs> But it's really, really interesting. I mean, I learned a lot just from her in that whole idea of time a lot of time being wasted at school and how they can get so much into one day of homeschooling. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I realize I'm going to say something controversial right now, but in a way, ADHD is kind of code for your child can't sit still and your child refuses to focus on the things that I tell him are important to learn. Right. Right. Yeah. It can definitely can be that your child just not a functional learner in this very specific environment that we've created. That we've decided is suitable for all children and we kind of shove them into it without giving it too much thought. And yeah, for the course, I interviewed more than 20 homeschooling families to find out all the different ways that different people do it. And I interviewed one dad actually who has ADHD and he said school was horrible for me and I see some of the same tendencies in my son and that's why we're homeschooling. Mm -hmm. And he told me I'm developing a business to code WordPress sites, code websites for people. And when I get into that, I just get so focused that my wife has to remind me to eat. And so, you know, his problem is not in focusing, it's in focusing on something that somebody else tells him is important, Right. (laughs) which is a useful skill to have in school. But (laughs) But if you're homeschooled, you don't have to do that. I've noticed recently that my son will sit and build Legos for an hour by himself. Mm -hmm. And every Wednesday I go to school with him and sit during circle time. And throughout the course of the year, he's gotten more and more like fidgety during circle time and sometimes just completely disruptive, which initially I was like, shocked and horrified by. (laughs) But what is interesting to me is that like, I know he has the ability to focus, but he's just not always so into circle time. And so at first, I was like, concerned that he was being rude and disrespectful and disruptive. And now I'm like, this is him saying that this is not like his jam, and or that he has a limited amount of attention span in this environment. And that's 
okay, that's probably reasonable and age appropriate. Yeah, it is. And it's really common. It's particularly common in boys. And it's natural, you know, it's right. it, what is unnatural is making children sit in a classroom for six hours a day and telling them what they need to know. So let's talk about the socialization components. I know this is like <laughs> this is the big thing that people always glom onto uh-huh. with homeschooling is that where do kids get their socialization and what does that look like? How do people manage that? And I'm sure you have research to say whether or not these children that are oh, homeschooled yes. or unschooled are socially of advanced course. or behind. Yeah, so <laughs> I wouldn't us, dare say anything if it wasn't. Research, I know. Right? Tell us all of it. Yeah. So I think, you know, firstly, it is absolutely possible to homeschool and have your child be not very well socialized if that's a decision you choose to make. You know, if you choose to shut them in a closet and not let them socialize, then yes, your child is not going to be well socialized. But let's take a little tangent and first ask, what is socialization like in schools? And I think, you know, a lot of parents care and rightly so about having their child spend time with people who don't look like them and maybe don't think like them. And so we think that schools are a good environment to do that in. And so, yes, there are people in schools who are not going to look like your child. But Berkeley is actually where I live is a very interesting case study because we have a fully integrated high school. So there is only one school in the whole town, one high school. And so, you know, in any other town, there would be one school down in the flats for the poor people and another school up in the hills for the rich people. (laughs) But here we only have one. And so there's actually a journalist called Meredith Moran, and she spent a year at Berkeley High studying the school and wrote a book called Class Dismissed, which I'll be sure to give you a link to. And what she found was that the children, yes, they're in class together, but they just don't interact And so in the book, she describes a scene where the children are having some kind of special dress up day and the white kids are all sitting on the steps, just kind of parading around and almost taunting the black kids who sit off in another area. And, you know, they're saying, look at us, look at how privileged we are. And I'm sure that's kind of uncomfortable to hear. I know it was really uncomfortable for me to read. And I also know that the rate of homeschooling for black families is growing very quickly because black families see what they call the school to prison pipeline. Mm -hmm. And they're saying, you know, no, thanks. We're going to try something different. (laughs) And so, you know, what it turns out is that socializing with people who are only the same age as you is really bizarre in the grand scheme of human history. And that socializing with people who share your interests is a much more natural way both to learn and also to just spend time with people. So, you know, if your son develops an interest in model trains, you know, maybe he ends up spending a time with a bunch of 60 year old retired guys (laughs) (laughs) because they're interested in trains. And, you know, most kids are really nervous about being around old people. (laughs) I don't know why I know I was when I was a kid. And maybe that's just because I read in the Wall Street Journal a couple of days ago that retired people spend virtually no time with anyone under the age of 35. But if you allow a child to follow their interests, you know, I interviewed one girl who made the decision herself as a result of a project in eighth grade to homeschool from ninth grade onwards. And she said she got super interested in blindness. And so her mother found her a school for the blind that she could go and volunteer in. And, you know, people at that school came from all different kinds of backgrounds. And she's exposed to, you know, not only people who have a totally different worldview from herself because they can't see, (laughs) but, you know, are coming from all over the area. And imagine what kind of learning experience that is. So... I guess overall, what the research shows is that people will socialize with anyone, no matter what they look like, if they have shared interests. Okay. And children who are homeschooled have at least as many social contacts as children who attend school. And yes, they may have fewer friends of precisely their own age as children who attend school, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. 
Interesting. And I know, and I'm sure this is different from city to city and town to town and state to state, but I know there's large organizations that of like homeschool communities or unschool communities where there's opportunities for like on Wednesday afternoons, we get together and we do X activity or we meet at this particular place and focus on whatever, maybe it's a learning modality or some sort of experiential kind of a thing. I think that people who have no level of familiarity with homeschooling or unschooling, just assume that it is kids sitting at home with one parent staring at them all day. But there's a lot of opportunities within the homeschooling and unschooling community to actually have a ton of connections and be a part of a really unique and tight knit involved community, which I think is yeah. so cool. And I think that's only becoming more and more prevalent. And th- these networks and communities are becoming bigger and bigger and, and wider and more common. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, you don't have to be the person who knows everything. <laughs> you can right, right. work with other people to teach your child. I interviewed Ben Hewitt, who wrote an article on Outside Magazine, and it's actually available online that actually went viral. It was incredibly popular and talks about how his two children were homeschooled and they basically spend their days out in the woods trapping animals. And, you know, they hired somebody to teach their children about trapping animals because that's what the children were interested in. And now, you know, the kid's like 13 years old and has adults coming to him to teach a class on how to trap animals. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine just how proud you would feel as a 13-year-old to think that your knowledge is valued by an adult who wants to learn this and you know how proud you would feel as a parent (laughs) well I think that's so powerful I guess would be the word for that child because now he's seen his worth in being Mm -hmm. a member of society that is contributing to something bigger than himself which is something that's rare for a 13 year old and it's also establishing like potentially like a sense of entrepreneurship and like how can you serve with your best gifts and all these kinds of things that I think are not taught in school because in school you're taught like at least for me it was like how do you get it you know in high school it was all about I went to a college prep school so it was like how do you do well enough here to get into the college that you want to go to and then when you get into the college it's like how do you do well enough here to you know, like get your degree in English. And like, what is your degree in English going to do for anyone? In the world? <laughs> hey, I have a degree in English. <laughs> but, but it doesn't teach you. It never a did sk- much for me. <laughs> That's the thing. It's like, it doesn't give you a skill at the end. I actually went back to school. So I ended up getting my degree in sociology with a minor in psychology. And then I went back to school years later to be a personal trainer. And I got a two year degree, which I got in like 18 months. But that two year degree was so specific to a skill that I like, immediately had a professional path out of that two-year degree. I had no professional path coming out of my four-year degree. It was just like, go find something that, you know, maybe I ended up at a psych hospital because that's what you do with sociology and psychology. Oh, not as a social work. Not as a patient then? No, (laughs) no, yeah. Important (laughs) clarification. So yeah, Yeah. I think that when you empower kids to find the things that they're passionate about, and then they they can really imagine, like, this is what I'm going to do with the rest of my life kind of a thing. Whereas a lot of times you get out of college, and you're like, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Yeah, exactly. I think that you've hit on a really key distinction there. And it seems to me that the school environment is saying, you know, just learn what we tell you to learn. We trust us that it's important. It's preparing you for life. And then when you get out, you realize you haven't really been prepared for life at all. Whereas if you homeschool, you're prepared for life by living life. Right, right. (laughs) By, you know, I've talked to another woman who's 13 year old, has a business making jewelry. She manages her own budgets. She buys all her own supplies. She does the whole thing end to end. So imagine what kind of learning experience that is, even if it's not a successful business, you know, how is she going to apply that to something when she's a little bit older? It's an incredible opportunity. Right. So I know 
I need to be respectful of your time and I know we need to wrap up here. And I feel like we could talk so much more about this and yeah. I have a lot more questions <laughs> in my head. But I have one more question for you and then I want you to tell us where we can find you and how we can get more of this information because I feel like it's kind of riveting to me. So <laughs> before you share where we can find you though, tell us in what ways you are a shameless mom. How am I a shameless mom? Well, I subscribe to a parenting philosophy that's called, it sounds kind of hokey, it's called Resources for Infant Educarers, or RI, and it's also known as Respectful Parenting. And it advocates for teaching children with respect. But along with that comes respect for my role in the relationship, not just as a parent, but also as an individual. So it allows me to do things like use the bathroom by myself, which I guess <laughs> I think is kind of shameless for parents. <laughs> it is. <laughs> and just to take time for myself and not see that as a treat or, you know, something I have to earn, but just because I'm a better parent for doing that. And I have rights in this relationship too. So I love that. And I guess the other thing would be we're talking, it's now one o'clock on a Wednesday and I haven't showered yet, which I guess is <laughs> kind of shameless too. <laughs> and I always tell people when we're going to record, I'm like, don't worry, it's audio only. Like absolutely yeah. <laughs> no pressure to shower for me. Yeah. I love it. So this has been so helpful, Jen, and I really appreciate everything you've shared with us and the work that you're doing in bringing more information to families to help them make the decisions around education and around parenting topics. So tell us again where we can find you where we can find your podcast your course and everything else yeah so the podcast is at yourparentingmojo.com and so I have new episodes coming out about every week although I'm possibly going to drop to every other week because my listeners say that it's a ton of information <laughs> and every other week is a fine frequency yeah. and I also have the course is already live the homeschooling course that's called your homeschooling mojo and listeners can go there if they're already interested in homeschooling and want to learn more and I'm actually in the throes of a master's in education as well, because it's just like I can't stop. <laughs> and so I know a lot of people aren't yet ready to think about homeschooling. They just think, I could never do that. And so they want to try the school-based route, and they want to learn how to better support their children through a school-based learning environment. And so there are a ton of research-based methods of doing that. And so right now I'm developing a course to do that. And so if any of your listeners are interested interested in kind of doing a pilot process and coming through that with me as I develop it, they can drop me an email at jen at yourparentingmojo.com. Perfect. Thank you so much for making yourself available. I know that's really, really helpful and, and really generous of you. Thank you for everything you've shared with us today and really helping us expand our perceptions and education around education. I enjoyed having you here and I want you to come back. So keep learning so you can come back and share more. Thank you. I will. It's been a ton of fun. Thanks, Jen. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much for spending time with Jen and I in the Shameless Mom Academy today. I hope you learned a lot. I know I felt like this interview was just packed full of information. So again, all the links Jen and I mentioned and books and resources and everything will be over in the show notes. So go to shamelessmom.com and click on episode 140. Also, Jen did leave a discount code over on that link. So go to shamelessmom.com click on episode 140 and you'll get a discount code for her course about your homeschooling mojo to find out if that might be an appropriate option for you, for your child, for your family. Thank you for listening today and spending time with us. I hope that you learned a lot of new things. And I also hope that you were inspired to share this episode with someone who maybe is having some questions about parenting, questions about education. I just think there's so many interesting, fascinating things in this conversation that many, many moms could benefit from. So if you know someone who would benefit, please do share this episode out. You can grab the link over on our website if you go to shamelessmom.com or you can follow us on social media and grab links from there to share the episode via Facebook or Instagram at the Shameless Mom Academy. So have a fantastic day. 
Enjoy the rest of your day. Soak in all this newfound knowledge and information. And no matter what you do today, make sure you do it shamelessly. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts.